Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today.
TV commentaries. 50 volumes, actually. For example, the book of uh, Philippians is Be Joyful, as you might imagine. It also has Be Courageous. There are 50 volumes on B. By God's grace, that is exactly what we should do. We should be something. We should be joyful and be courageous. And there are five times in the Gospels where our Lord specifically asks us to be something. And I'm sure you would agree with me. If Jesus said you ought to be this, then we ought to do our utmost exactly to be just that. A few weeks ago, Word 
translated as workmanship in this verse, is the word for yama. It is the word from which we get our English word poem. It actually means that which is made, manufactured, project. It is the same word as found in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. In Romans 1, verse 20, that very familiar passage. That the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Just a reminder again, as we read a turn a couple of weeks ago in our great creation conference, creation is clearly seen. You have to choose not to see it. But it says here, being understood by the things that are made. There's that word, oyama. Something that is made, manufactured, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We're all without excuse. Just general revelation makes us without excuse before God. In other words, that verse is simply saying that conversion is just the beginning. God expects sanctification. God wants us to become His home. His thing made that we can be a demonstration of who He is. From the moment of our salvation to the point, hopefully, of our natural death, God continues His work in us to be what He wants us to be. Now, how does God do that? Well, not only does He implant a vision for but he empowers the victory. And this is where God the Holy Spirit, we have this wonderful team in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each with all their wonderful attributes. God the Holy Spirit's job is that of doing a work in us. Look what Paul said as he wrote down what the Holy Spirit said in Philippians 2 verse 13. Here, God says that the desire to do anything spiritual is from God. I would guarantee that. The Bible says, don't speak, no man has ever yet sought God. If it weren't for the Holy Spirit in us seeking God, we would never seek God. We, we just would run from Him forever. He places the Holy Spirit, does He places the Holy the desire in us. But not only is the desire of God, it
so you know, you'll never get peace any other way until God gives it. He's the God of peace. He gives the peace with God. He gives the peace of God. Now the God of peace, another part of the New Testament says the God of all peace, that brought again from the dead our Lord, where Lord means master, Jesus is Lord over San Joaquin And Jesus is Lord over California. Now I know there's another Lord who thinks he's Lord and lives up there in Sacramento, but I promise you Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord over our country. He's Lord over this world. He is Lord. He is Master. He is not only Lord, but he is Jesus. That means Jehovah saves. That's what that word is. Now, he is master over his own death, burial, and resurrection. Unbelievable. Jesus, no one took his life. He offered his life. He gave himself for us. But Jesus raised himself from the dead. Now, no one's ever even come back from the dead and stayed alive. Jesus not only came back from the dead, but he stayed alive and he did it all himself. Jesus, therefore, became our Savior at that point. Notice now, the great shepherd of the sheep. Aren't you glad that you're one of God's sheep? He feeds you, he leads you, he guards you. I am not alone tonight. I have a shepherd who is watching over me. Right now, there's a divine shepherd watching us. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now that's not something we can handle. Jesus had an agreement. God the Son had an agreement with God the Father. It's an eternal agreement. That blood must be shed so that sins could be washed away. That's why it's called a covenant. The word very covenant means it's a blood covenant, a cut covenant. Blood had to be shed. Jesus did that. Now, why did he do it, verse 21, to make you perfect? To make you be something, to do something, that you and I can be people that integrity, people who have good uh, abilities to serve God, make you perfect. Perfect, why? Why do I need to be perfect? I don't mean sinless, just mature, just well uh, uh, formed in the Christian graces. Make you perfect in every good work. And every good work to do His will. Oh, I don't think I can do that. Well, thank the Lord, it's not of me working in me. Oh, praise God, He works in me. He works through me. If He didn't work in me, then He couldn't work through me. Thank the Lord for the work that He did. Now, what are we? What is going to happen when He works in us and through us? Then we will be able to do that which is well pleasing in His sight. Through Jesus Christ, He works in me. Now, He's not going to do it if I don't do it. He's not going to do it if I don't try to do something. He wants us to do it, and then He'll get behind it. To whom be glory forever and ever. The final result of all this is that God gets glory from our life. Amen. That means so be it. Now, God uses all these wonderful tools to make us be perfect or complete. God saws on us for a while, he files on 
Israel's army for a while. He sand paper. What's he doing? He is putting together this wonderful together, this poem. He's making us into something. And when it's done, it's going to win the divine Pulitzer Prize. It is an amazing poem. What does he do? First of all, he uses the cutting of the Word of God. The Word of God is a sword. And God, like a good, great physician, he snips on things and he works on things. I went to a skin doctor once. And that guy got out everything there was to be got. He got scalpels and snippers and freezers. And I mean, man, he was going after all those little tags and things. The cutting of the Word of God. God's plan is to get rid of all my bad habits. To cut away all the bad stuff. So that I can become this fresh palate. That he can make this wonderful masterpiece. You know, you know sometimes you have to break the bad habits before you get the good habits. The cutting of the Word of God. That's why if you're not in the Word, and the only time you're in the Word is when you come to church, you're just not going to get formed to be something like you should. And not only does he use the cutting of the Word of God, he used the curing of the prayers of God. Oh, I'm thankful that it's not just cutting, but thank God the heavenly physician works on us and takes care of that pain that we have. And he applies that spiritual medicine all week long. I've been praying for our family, for many of you this morning as you were singing. I was thinking about several of you. I know you're hurting. You've got sickness in your body. You've got issues in your family. I was praying, oh God, just use that the wonderful curing balm of Gilead and raise them up. No, it's tough. I'm even thinking of it right now in my heart, my mind. God wants us to work so that we can make a difference for Him. And I don't know what it is. God, it seems like this generation of Christians has almost lost the understanding that, yes, it's true, good works aren't necessary for salvation, but good works are a beautiful thing to do for God. We should be something. Paul reminded his young associate Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verse 17, the man of God, the woman of God, should be perfect. Again, there's that word, we should be mature, thoroughly furnished to good works. It is God's will for a man of God, a woman of God, to do something. He wants us to be something. And so, God has worked for us when he saved us. He is working in us by his Holy Spirit. Now he wants to work through us to be something. Now we know there are hundreds of Old Testament commands. Beautiful laws and commands and principles that when applied, uh, interpreted correctly, and applied wisely are so helpful. But many people don't realize that the New Testament has commands. In fact, there's over 800 of them. We're going to go through several of them. I'm not sure how many. We may go through them for a while, pick it up again later on. But we're today going through the five B's of the gospel. Five times in the four gospels, Jesus said, I want you to be this. He said, well, how can I be that? I, I don't have power. We just went through a long treatise that we can be something because God works in us. And he works through us. So we, God would never tell us to be something. 
morning, oh, I don't think I can be like that. They were missing the point. The Holy Spirit can do this through us. Look at the first D. D, wise as serpents, and harmless as doves. Matthew 10, verse 16. Our Lord was instructing his twelve, those mighty men of God. He was going to send them out to preach the good word. Let's read verse 16 together, would you? All right, ready to get. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. There is nothing is as exciting as serving God. Well, can I remember the in the early days, late teenager, early 20s, there with a stack of packs in my hand, bus flyers, a bag of candy, then proceeding to interact with precious, needy children in underserved areas. Trying to get them on a church bus, bring them to church. I just remember those wonderful days. All the smiles, the laughter, the interaction, the pure joy. I mean, really, nothing is as pure as that joy of just talking to a little child about Jesus and then getting them on a bus and bringing them to church and many of them accepting the Lord Jesus Christ. It was wonderful. God has sent us and he sends us to serve. Erwin McManus said this, once survival has become our supreme goal, we've lost our way. The church is not called to survive, but to serve. You cannot wash the feet of a dirty world if you refuse to touch it. And so Jesus ordained these disciples. He then sent them out, full well knowing that it was not going to be an easy go. Notice what he said, I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. Um, what? Really? Wow, thanks, Jesus. I can't wait to go out and get in the middle of a pack of wolves. I'm a sheep. I don't have any defenses. Doesn't really sound safe for body or mind. And wolves are vicious. I will tell you, they are vicious creatures. They'll bite your head off. And I must admit, there have been a few times over the years where you give someone the gospel, or you try to, and man, they do just that. They just bite your head off. They are wolves. Well, who are these wolves? Well, what is because in verse 17 it says, Beware of men. And that's not meaning biological males there, it's meaning mankind, men or women. Why are some people so nasty, so vicious? Why are they wolves? I mean, what makes them that way? Paul told Timothy why that happened. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul told his young preachers, uh, brothers, and look, brother, I'm going to tell you, it's not going to be an easy go for you. Just so you know, Ephesus is a crazy place. And while you're there, you're going to encounter some crazy things. And he said the problem is these people are demonized. They are just full of the devil. Literally. 2 Timothy 2.26 And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Now in Christ's day, it wasn't secular Roman governmental councils pushing people to give absolute allegiance to Caesar. Then it was the Jewish religious political Sanhedrin who were demanding that everybody follow 
big old cricket or something. I'm going to eat that tail. The snake is getting ready to just reach out there and gobble up that prey. Being wise. Now, God, of course, then you've got to have a heart that's clean, no Holy Spirit. But you've got to be smart as you serve the Lord. Be careful. Don't get proud and just uh, be wise as you serve God. The tiger met a lion as they sat beside the pool. Said the tiger to the lion, Why are you roaring like a fool? That's not foolish, said the lion with a twinkle in his eyes. They call me king of all beasts because I advertise. The rabbit heard the talking man home on the street. He thought he'd try the lion's plan, but his roar was just as sweet. The fox came to investigate and had a lunch in the woods. And so, my friend, when you advertise, be sure you've got the goods. Yes, be wise before you start advertising, God says here, be careful, you should be wise, be smart. You're going to try to reach people for the Lord, but be wise about it. Number two, be harmless. Wise as a snake, harmless as a dove. Nothing could be more harmless and precious to a dove. The word harmless there is the word unmixed. Two words in the Greek language, ah, and for mixing. He said you need to be unmixed, just be single-minded, no ulterior motives. You know, salt is an amazing substance. It preserves, it heals, it promotes good taste. And it actually had a very prominent part in ancient history. Before refrigeration, before all the modern medicines, salt was actually one of the most common of the substances used. But some unsavory characters would take the salt and cut it and mix it with salt that had kind of lost its flavor and could stretch it that way. That's why Paul admonished in Romans 16, verse 19, he said, For your obedience has come abroad that all men I am glad therefore on your behalf. But yet I would have you wise according to that which is good and simple. There's that word, same word, unmixed, harmless, back in our text. Harmless concerning evil. Jesus is simply saying is uh, be wise, be smart as you're serving God, and then have no ulterior motives. Highest possible integrity, no mixed mixtures in what you do. You don't, you, if you're going to serve God, you can still keep your standards and keep the truth. You don't have to be crazy. I think one of the greatest examples of our Lord is uh, He was asked by a fake religious. They were hoping to snare him in Matthew 22. They said, should we pay our tax to a heathen government? Now, he could have said, oh, boy, you're right. Caesar is a rotten, no good sinner. But he did. Jesus, very wisely, as a serpent, harmless as a dove, he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus did not compromise. He didn't mix the truth with error. But neither did he say everything that he could have said. He just was judicious in what he said. He was smart. He was not evil in anything he did. He was pure-hearted. Charles Swindell said, Christian tact is like a girdle. It doesn't change the truth. It only presents it. 
Number two, you'll get to that later. Five B's of the Gospels. Number one, be harmless as doves. Number two, be content with your wages. What? What are you talking about, Pastor? Well, let's go to Luke chapter 3. Now let me give you a little testimony about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said that of all those that are born of women, and I don't know who is not, but um, for all those who are born of women, it was a saying, all that are human, he was saying, the greatest man who ever lived is John. Well, that's a pretty good testimony when Jesus said that the greatest man outside of himself, human, has ever lived. That's a pretty good guy. John. Later, they know him as John the Baptizer. Well, he had a great message. His message was that of repentance. He was a strong preacher, straightforward. And at times, came across with head of harsh, brash, and loving. For example, in Matthew chapter 3, as I mentioned earlier, he called those false teachers a bunch of snakes. He said, you're a family of snakes in that. Well, I'll tell you, that didn't turn any brownie points. He was a straightforward guy. So, uh, but I don't know, for whatever reason, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he was a Bible preacher, and people came out to hear him, despite the fact that he was so strong. And not only did they come out to hear him, many of them made decisions, they got baptized, and they determined that they were at least seemed like they were going to follow the Lord. But I think many of them were so tired of all the boring and Tedium that had come from the religious leaders, they just were it was refreshing to hear John the Baptist. Good numbers of them received Christ. Some people were Sadducees and Pharisees. A good number of tax collectors, publicans, as I would call them. I'm not kidding folks. This is a hard group for getting saved. And then there was a very unlikely group, and that's the that's our text here. Some hardened military men. They embraced the message. Now I tell you, hardened military men, these were not fresh-faced conspirators. Now, they were more like Jewish mercenaries. They probably served Herod and Tippus. And so look at verse 14. And so the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, well, what should we do? I mean, they demanded of Jesus. Can you see those hardened soldiers? They demanded of Jesus. Well, what should we do? Now, you know, we want, we want to serve God. He said, well, then if you want to serve God, if you want to prove you're truly a believer, then do these three things. Do violence to the land, neither accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, I like the fact that John the Baptist did not tell them that if you're going to be a good Christian, you have to lay down all your that's what a communist government would say, but not a Christian. That's not what John the Baptist said. He said, if you're serious about your faith, first of all, he said, never use excessive force. Keep yourself under control when you are doing your job. Never shake anybody down for their supposed protection, try to get some money or whatever. Second of all, never falsely accuse anybody, whether it be uh, a citizen for a bribe or a fellow soldier for a position, never falsely accused. And third, that's our text. He said, if you are serving the public, 
you're in the public safety sector, then never involve yourself in any sort of a mutiny, a strike, against leadership over wages. Because in so doing, you might jeopardize the safety and health of your country. Never do that. If you're truly a believer, you wouldn't ever jeopardize the safety of your people under your charge. Very practical and basic rules. Basically, he's simply saying, if your repentance is real, then here's what it'll show up. It'll show up in honesty, integrity, and justice, and mercy. Are you a true repentor? Am I? That's a question we always need to ask ourselves. Am I a true repentor, or am I just kind of someone who reads the Bible and says, well, that's nice. There are people who, for example, are afraid even to walk down an aisle. I mean, it may have been forever since you walked that aisle. Maybe even never. You're afraid. It's kind of strange that some people feel safer out in the world in the devil's crowd than they do in church with God's people or when God asks you to do something. But some people even have a weird concept. If they confess their sins, somehow they're going to be in big trouble. So I'll hide my sin and I won't be in trouble. Friends, how crazy is that? Don't be like old Bill and Tom. Bill and Tom are a couple of drunk brothers. They prayed to God more than thunderstorm was just roaring. And Bill prayed, Lord, save me and my poor drunk brother Tom. Tom told his brother, Gosh, Bill, don't tell him we're drunk. Tell him we're sick. And folks, there's a lot of folks like that. They're like, don't tell God I did this. You know, folks, God knows everything already. We just need to be honest with him and be a true repenter. God loves you. He doesn't love you because you're lovely. He just loves you. And God says, if you are a true repenter, you will just come to him. And certainly, we will do what we're supposed to do in our lives. Harmless as doves. Example our wages. Number three, merciful as God. Luke 6, 36. Jesus said, everything you're doing, everything you're Saying people are listening to him, you're writing people reading. Be careful. Verse 36 says, Be therefore merciful as your Father is merciful. A brief word of explanation here from verse 9 the context is about slavery, their servants. Now, in Scripture, servants were usually underpaid workers, in some cases, severely underpaid. But almost always paid, at least paid or exchanged with some form of uh, housing or food or whatever. And in some cases, they were uh, had been overtaken as an enemy of the state. And so it was either die or become a slave. So they exchanged being a slave. Now, a point here. Scripture never condones slavery. Scripture never advocates, of course, or uh, says that human trafficking in any way is okay. But some people criticize the Bible because it doesn't seem like God demands the immediate overthrow of every ingrained, centuries-old, sinful custom of the day. And on this subject, I like what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, the Lord chooses to change people and society gradually through the proclamation of the truth of the Word of God. And that plays into what we're saying here. He is saying, don't strike, just be merciful. 
If you want to change the world, don't go out and riot. He said, just have an attitude of mercy, and you'll be just like Jesus. And Jesus changed the world. Paul, after that, Titus chapter 2, where he reminded servants, he said, I know you think you're down here on the totem pole. I know you think that there's little you can do to promote Christianity. But he said, if you will serve God and have a merciful spirit, you will just adorn the spirit of God. Titus chapter 2, verse 10, it says, adorn the gospel, the doctrine of God. That is to make the gospel beautiful. Now, the gospel is already beautiful. The doctrine of God is already beautiful. But we can live in such a way that it just is made more beautiful. Friend and I this week were talking about our joint love for cinnamon. I love cinnamon. All that wonderful cinnamon and sweetness and fresh baked dough. I once read an article actually that in malls, the cinnamon business actually puts the smell of those fresh mixed, they actually pipe it out into the mall so that when people are walking by, they smell it and entice people to come in. It works for me, for sure. I can't ever walk by one of those places without buying something. The the, the smell just makes it, it's already good, but the smell just makes it that much better. I want the smell, the odor of my presence to just be so Christ-like that I adorn the gospel. You know, ladies put on jewelry. Some men do too. But ladies put on jewelry. And those ladies that put on jewelry, they, they just do it to make themselves even more beautiful than they are. And that's what God is saying here. He said, do everything you can to make the gospel seem wonderful. Mercy is a wonderful cornerstone of God's wonderful attributes. In fact, the scripture is mentioned 262 times. And so, we live in such a way where we soften the hardness of people by reminding them of how merciful our Savior is. I can't think of a better way to do that than what we do here on these wonderful theatrical productions. You know, we preach the gospel for an hour through music and word, and when people see what Jesus did, I mean, it's always so wonderful. That's the same gospel message, but it is, uh, it's just a reminder of how wonderful Jesus is. In fact, look at the verse just before Verse 36, Luke 6, 35. When we do that, we'll be the children of the highest, for he is kind. He is merciful. God said we ought to live in such a way that we are born the gospel, make Jesus just as good as he is, and put some jewelry on so that he just seems better. Just in every way you can, live a life of mercy. Mercy is not giving people all that they deserve when they may deserve some punishment. Give them a little break. Someone once said you have been saved out of the world and then sent back into the world. To witness to the world. That's the only business you have in the world until you are taken out of the world. And so God's plan is for us to adorn His gospel. Harmless as doves, content with your wages, merciful as God, and then faithful servants. Luke 12. The second coming of Christ from Mount Olives is as sure as the first coming in Bethlehem. Look at verse 35. 
turns away when he comes and knocks and they open to him immediately. And the actual day and hour of our Lord we're not sure about, but we're supposed to be looking. That's why the Apostle Paul said in Titus 2, verse 13, looking for that blessed hope. Looking for that blessed hope. And it's a blessed hope for sure. James talked about the future, and he said, be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. He said, think about it. Jesus is coming. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. And so these great New Testament writers believed that the coming was then, and we believe it still today. And so God said, be looking, wake up every day and be looking for the blessed hope. Luke 12 is a metaphor. It's a metaphor of wedding feast. Many wedding feasts lasted several days in the ancient because it involved a lot of feasting. Then, if you're going to have a big crowd, it wasn't like you could just go out and get some food. You had to bake it, you had to butcher it, and it was a big deal. It took several days, and then when you had it, they didn't want to be over. They wanted to really take advantage of it. So the master said to his servant, I'm going to go to the wedding, and you know how it is. I may be gone for a while. It may be a day, it may be three days. It might be seven days, it might be two weeks, I don't know. But here's the deal, while I'm gone, I want you as a servant to do your best to do your duty. But I want you to always be ready for me, because I'm coming. And when I come, I don't want to see things slacked off. That's why 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, he said, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent. Don't forget what you're doing. Friend, never forget what we're doing. Never forget the point of why we're here. Never lose sight of what we're doing. Some years ago, in a wealthy Boston suburb, a very tragic thing happened. There was a christening party, and all the people came to the home. There was lots of eating and drinking and laughing. After a while, someone said, hey, where's the baby? The mother's heart just jumped, and she realized she hadn't heard so she scurried to the master bedroom where they could put that baby in the middle of a huge bed where it would be safe. Only to find out that in that darkened room, the guests had come and piled their coats on the middle of that bed. And there in the, all those coats was the smothered and dead form of a little baby. I can't hardly think of anything much more tragic I'll tell you this, in the spiritual world, I can't think of anything more tragic for people to come to a church, to come and come here and have coffee and sing and enjoy all the trappings and yet forget the real reason we're here, to worship Jesus and to know He's coming soon and to be ready for His coming. God said, don't lose sight. That's what He told this sermon. He said, always be ready the coming of the Lord. Be a faithful servant. And finally this morning, be of good cheer. John 16, verse 33. Now, anybody that knows the construction of John knows that these final chapters, Jesus is in the last few hours of his earthly life. He's there in the upper room and he tells them, these things 
We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.